Welcome back to America's Talking. I'm Austin Berg. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Professor Michael T. Hartney. Professor Hartney is an assistant professor of political science at Boston College and a Hoover Fellow at Stanford University. His work's been published in American Political Science Review, American Journal of Political Science, and Perspectives on Politics, and that's received media coverage in The Economist, New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. He is the author of the new book, How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions, and American Education. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Austin. It's great to be here with you. In terms of their power to actually pass or kill legislation, who is the most overrated interest group in American politics and who is the most underrated? Let me sort of confine that a little bit to education politics and say that uh, the most overrated group are philanthropists like Bill Gates and the Walton, uh, kind of the, re- the reform uh, triumvirate. Um, And the most underrated uh, are the teachers unions. And this is despite a narrative over the last decade that teachers unions and public sector unions more generally are on the decline. Um, This narrative kind of started during the Great Recession when you had uh, very prominent cases of governors like Chris Christie in New Jersey and Scott Walker in Wisconsin who managed to enact some reforms to their state labor laws Um, And it culminated, of course, with the Janus Supreme Court decision in 2018, which rolled back the ability of public sector unions in states with uh, without right to work laws uh, to collect any forms of payment from public workers who didn't want to associate with the union. So I think the reason that the unions are underrated is people assume you see a lot of headlines, the unions last stand. Uh, This is it for organized labor. But if you dig beneath the surface a little, as I'm sure we'll unpack today, it turns out not to be the case. The unions are still very much the 800-pound gorilla in education politics. We will get back to the intricacies of the teachers' unions, and I want to get into that pretty pretty deeply. Uh, But I have to ask you about school boards generally. Are public school boards a good idea? It seems like there is a lot of light without heat in terms of the quality of candidates, in terms of the problems that they're actually solving. Why not put them under the control of sort of like a county board or some other local government? Why do we need public school boards? Yeah, I mean, originally, of course, the idea was that you had real local control in education. You know, there was a time 100 years ago or so where we actually had 100,000 plus school districts in the United States. And we still have a lot. We have about 13, 14,000 of them. Um But that's real local control, where a school board literally governs a single schoolhouse. We don't really have that today. We have kind of uh, what I sometimes refer to as the the best and worst of a centralized and decentralized education system. So we're centralized uh, – or sorry, let me start with decentralization. We're decentralized in the sense that um, school boards uh, have limited powers – but they have lots of important veto powers. They have they play a key role in implementation of public policy. So you can have uh, no child left behind uh, federal legislation or a race to the top program. These big policy ideas that come out of Washington. But ultimately, those policies have to be filtered through and implemented by local school boards. And that's, I think, the, where school boards play a big role. They can kind of be a veto point. Um, they can be a choke point on, say, expanding charter schools or choice because that's considered competition. Um, but on the other hand, we don't have radical local control because radical local control would literally mean, you know, parents could vote with their feet. You'd have maybe a single schoolroom 
um, and school boards under sort of a tibu like competition would feel a lot of pressure uh, to be attentive to parents' interests. But we just came out of COVID, and I think we can comfortably say that school boards didn't exactly feel or respond uh, intensively uh, to parent pressure to reopen schools. So, yeah, I mean, Mark Twain was one of the early critics of school boards in the United States. I think they're very parochial. Um, You're right that we have a hard time getting people to run for those offices in certain cases. Uh, The types of people who serve, well, I think a lot of them are very well-meaning. We do know that disproportionately uh, retired or even current educators in a nearby district tend to have an outsized presence on these boards. Um, Oftentimes, I think on average in the U.S., my work puts it at about 20 to 25 percent of all school board members are current or retired educators, which would mean that teachers are about five times overrepresented on these boards relative to citizens from other occupational backgrounds. And, you know, that's not to pick on teachers or to pick on school board members. We could make the very same criticism of other special purpose governments like library districts and fire districts if they become too uh, dominated by representatives who have an occupational linkage to that industry, then when they make policy, they're going to look at things through a very particular prism, not necessarily a lens that's in the best interest of the median taxpayer, median parent or average voter in the district. So I think the policy prescription from a lot of folks for that, let's say, what would we call it? The uh, an overpowering influence of teachers unions that is uh, distorting policy in a way that maybe doesn't best serve communities. People would say we need school choice. Short of universal school choice in these communities, what are some policy levers that you would recommend for kind of evening, balancing the the, the playing field there? Yeah. So I think one of the things um, that's worth thinking through is the difference between large urban school districts and not even necessarily like large urban, but just large school districts. For example, Florida has a lot of large school districts because they're all countywide districts um, and they're not necessarily all urban. I mean, like Miami-Dade would be. But I think it's those are a separate case in some ways from your typical uh, mid-sized school district. I mean, a lot of people forget of those 14,000 school districts I mentioned, the large number of students go to the top 100 large urban districts. But we've got a lot of school districts in this country that are composed of a single high school, a couple middle schools, and a few elementary schools. So these are very different animals. And what I would say in terms of reforms, if you're interested in reforms that try and create some balance, that try and allow parents and homeowners to have a seat at the table, um, the first thing I would say is in your large urban districts, I think that mayoral control is not a bad idea. Um, In fact, I think Chicago is making a huge mistake in reverting to a system that will be a very parochially minded district by district school board uh, rather than a single entity where voters in the community know who's responsible for appointing the superintendent and the direction of the schools. And for me, the best evidence of that is Washington, D.C., where Washington, I would say, is one of the large urban districts that had the biggest turnaround success story. I mean, not to say they're perfect by any means, but prior to Michelle Ree's controversial tenure as superintendent there, um, the city schools were among the worst compared to other urban districts that had the same poverty rate. Uh, Ree came in, she cleaned house, she got uh, various powers to get rid of bloat in the central office bureaucracy. She was able to institute some sensible teacher quality reforms and the quality of teaching and learning went up in the district. Um, But she was only able to do that 
because Washington had gotten rid of an elected school board uh, and gave all of the power to appoint her to the mayor. Now, the part of that story that's interesting is that Rees reforms became controversial and her the mayor that appointed her, Adrian Fenty, was actually voted out of office. And it's hard to say, you know, a mayor's voted out of office for a single issue, but there's a lot of evidence that his appointment of Reed directly led to him losing his job. Now, a lot of reformers look at that and say, isn't that a bad thing? But I would actually argue that it's good evidence that the system was working as such because there was accountability vested in a much more high profile elected figure. And when the schools weren't doing well, the media, parents, watchdog groups could shine a light and say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Mayor, your schools aren't doing well. Let's fix this. And in a single election, you could change course. Whereas if you move to a a school board elected system like in Chicago, those terms are going to be staggered. Good luck getting a group of citizens to come together and, quote unquote, throw the bums out of office in a single election. So I think mayoral control has its virtues for larger districts. For smaller districts um, or more moderate sized districts, another thing you could do that will help at the margins is to hold school board elections uh, concurrently with November even year elections when turnout is higher. Because when you hold those elections at odd times of the year, the types of people who turn up and participate, they're much more likely to be public employees. They're much less likely to be the typical parent in the district. Again, it goes to accountability and responsiveness. We want public institutions to be as accountable and responsive to the average voter in their district as possible. And when you hold elections at weird times of the year, that's just not happening. That's really interesting. So you mentioned the Chicago school board example. Chicago, for those who don't know, recently moved from being a a school board entirely controlled by the mayor of the city for the last 20 or 30 years to being uh, phased in to being elected. And what's funny is that in the state of Illinois, municipal elections are in February and April of off election years. So for those of you who've been to Chicago in February, it's the most miserable time to go outside. That is when we hold our municipal elections. Funny enough, they put the school board election in November when people usually vote for the Chicago school board, but the rest of the state school board elections are still on this very odd calendar. So that's interesting that you pointed that out. In terms of the teaching profession and all the challenges that that profession faces currently, what are some policy levers that you're excited about for improving the tenure, the quality, the dynamism of the of the teaching profession generally in the United States? Big question. Uh, there's a lot that we could be doing better. Of course, a lot of the things that we're doing aren't necessarily because people woke up last week and said, you know, how can we create ineffective teacher workforce policies? They're a vestige of things that we did 25, 50, 100 years ago. And let me just sort of set the table with probably the best uh, or most important uh, past event that continues to influence where we are today. And that is what I call the Sandra Day O'Connor effect. I think other people refer to that. When Sandra Day O'Connor came out of law school, Uh, The only job she could get was as a legal secretary, right? Because this was a time in American history where the nation's most credentialed uh, and high aptitude women had had only some careers open to them, including teaching. So for a long period of time, and and this really hit home to me, I was going through my mother who's 70, turning 75 this year, I was going through her yearbook at public high school in Rhode Island. And I was blown away by how many of the teachers that she had went to Ivy League schools. And I said, well, this is not like anything you'd see today. And it was because of the fact that uh, most highly accomplished women went into teaching. Now, things change for the better. Women have all sorts of opportunities today. But 
The problem is the education workforce, that is the policies we use to attract, retain, develop talent in K-12 teaching didn't change with the times. And so whether it's uh, the fact that teachers are paid almost exclusively for the number of years they stick in the job and whether they earn a master's degree. And by the way, that doesn't even have to be a master's degree in content. So you get a pay raise if you get a master's degree learning about educational pedagogy, not necessarily if you're a math teacher getting a master's in mathematics. Um, so all of the incentives are wrong. Uh, and But trying to break that apart is really hard. It's a lot like Social Security reform. So it's not that the teachers that we have in the classroom today are bad people, have bad motives. It's that they went into the profession and got promised certain things. And understandably, they don't want those things to change in the same way that people who are expecting their Social Security don't want to change the system, even if a change in the system uh, would be better for future workers that are my age or younger. Um, so we're up against a lot of entrenched, vested interests who are opposed to radically reforming the profession. But what essentially needs to be done is we need to attract uh, higher, um, more accomplished uh, uh, candidates into the field. Um, one of the levers is pay. And maybe I'm, uh, I'm you know, uh, I'm sort of uh, I actually do think uh, that teachers unions, you know, the, the, I have some points to make when they say that teachers haven't gotten a real pay raise. Now, probably not true in Chicago, but teachers in the United States as a whole since the Great Recession have not really gotten much of a pay raise after accounting for inflation over the last 15 or so years. That is a problem. But stepping back a little bit, it's not that we're not spending more on education because we are. The problem is we've invested in this country in teacher quantity, not in teacher quality. And the evidence of that is that we've hired a lot more bodies, not just teachers, by the way, just school staff in general. If you look at the number of school staff relative to enrollment in public schools, the explosion in hires has brought more and more paraprofessionals, non-classroom staff, and more teachers into the system. But, you know, here's the problem. This isn't, you know, multivariable calculus. If you spend $700 billion a year on K-12 education and you keep hiring more and more people and 80 percent of what it takes, what we spend on education goes to salaries and benefits, it means there's going to be less salary and benefits for the teachers in the system. So one of the things we could be a little creative with is we could do what a lot of Asian countries do, which is they tolerate some larger class sizes, particularly in more advanced grade levels, and they take some of those savings and they return them to teachers in the form of higher pay. That would both generate more interest among potential applicants into the profession or keep high quality candidates around because you can pay them well, uh, but without breaking the bank by tolerating those higher class sizes. And we haven't been willing to make that trade off in this country. Let me turn real quickly to a policy that has nothing to do with pay. Um, but has a lot to do, I think, with what either keeps teachers in the profession or dissuades them. And that's the issue of, of discipline. You know, um, we've been seeing more and more, particularly post-pandemic, um, you know, viral videos uh, demonstrating classroom management problems. And, you know, there are a lot, you know, you could say, I wouldn't do this job for $100,000 a year if you're going to let a kid who takes or makes an effort to hit a teacher back in the classroom 15 minutes later because you've gone through a restorative justice process. That's not appealing to most teachers, but unfortunately, because of where we are in the current political times, 
um, at least at the national level, I think it's fair to say the teachers unions have not necessarily taken up the positions on classroom discipline. That is what most teachers want because it runs counter to the policies that both the Democratic Party and particularly the progressive wing of the Democratic Party have been pushing, which is we don't we want to get suspension rates down. They need to be equitable by race and demographic characteristics. And that's more important than allowing teachers to maintain classroom order. And we know from surveys that teachers themselves say their classroom working conditions are are as important to them, if not more important to them, than is their salary in terms of whether they're going to stick around and want to stay in the job. And finally, let me also just say that we need to really reimagine the profession because today's workers, people of my generations, I was born in 1983, so I'm turning 40 this year and younger than me, we're the types of people who aren't going to, we're not working at GM or Ford for 50 years and getting the signature plaque, right? We move around a lot. But everything in the profession from how pensions are paid out um, to salary increases encourage or assume that teachers are going to spend their entire career in a single school district. And that world is gone. It it really is. But our policies, again, just like that example with women in the workforce, our policies haven't kept up with that realism. Two things, maybe one on the negative and one on the positive. Let's start with the, the negative. The perception, I still think, broadly across the country is that teachers unions serve a very important function. They represent and ensure the quality of uh, ensure teacher quality in schools. Uh, they make sure that there's fair working conditions, things of that nature. What do you think is the biggest misperception about teachers unions today? Biggest misperception. I think people underestimate, I mean, not people in the policy space, maybe, but kind of in the um, in the general public. I think there is and actually I have a, a paper in the works right now um, with a co-author at Ohio State, Vlad Kogan, another political scientist, where we're looking, um, we're using survey data to kind of uh, look at what does the public perceive when they have a, we give them a hypothetical school board matchup and then We show in some cases the candidates endorsed by the local educators association. And there's a positive effect. I think a lot uh, that is um, uh, voters are more likely to vote for the candidate who's endorsed by the educators association. And I think part of it goes. so, So you ask, like, what's the myth here? And the myth is that I think a lot of voters assume that this is a good governance group that really they're making the uh, profession more attractive for teachers. And that's all they do. And maybe they do some of that. And I wouldn't say that they don't. I do think that one of the problems that conservatives or people on the right who are critical of unions, um, one of their problems is they don't understand that any employee wants some vehicle to have their voice heard with their employer. So if there's nothing else there, the union's the obvious choice. But what people don't realize, maybe some people started to realize it during COVID when they woke up and they said, wait a minute, it's February, vaccines are rolling out. How come my school is not reopening. This doesn't make sense. I think a lot of parents just assume that superintendents and school boards just made the decision that was in the best interest for kids, followed the science, but they were sort of uh, um, awoke to the fact that um, there's a lot of political science going on. Uh, And in this case, the teachers unions in many districts had uh, had the political power to make reopening a much slower affair. And so to to sort of sum up where where I'm going with this is 
The teachers unions are not all powerful. If they were all powerful, every teacher in this country would make a quarter million dollars a year and have a Tesla. That's not reality. And there's not enough money to do that. Okay. But that doesn't mean they're not powerful. It's just that what people don't appreciate is that their power is in the power to block policies that people are proposing to try and make the system better. Uh, and, and that goes to sort of all sorts of things about risk aversion, back to what I said, their members came in, took jobs and said, OK, you're going to get tenure after three years. Your pay is going to be based on this. All of these sorts of things, your pension will look like this. And anyone who comes in and says, I think we can do this better, even if it's the majority of the public in a school district. I mean, a great book I'd recommend to listeners written by my Hoover colleague here, Paul Peterson, and some of his colleagues at Harvard uh, back in the 2010s. It's called Teachers Versus the Public. And what Paul and his colleagues showed in that book using years of survey data is that on policy issues that have to do with teacher policy, so how should teachers be paid? How should they be evaluated? What should tenure look like? Teachers and the public are very much in disagreement. The public wants to see the education system try some radical reforms. The public says, let's try. It will be imperfect like any pay system is, but let's try to pay good teachers more than we pay bad teachers. But teachers as a whole are very opposed to that. And as a consequence, their union takes up the position to defend their interests of being opposed to that. And so the union is very effective in being able to use the multiple veto points that exist in America's political system, that's something that people really need to realize here, that one of the reasons the unions are so powerful at blocking things they don't want is our education system involves federal, state, and local levels and the courts, which means that if the unions want to block school reopening, like the example I gave a minute ago, get an injunction, file a lawsuit, you know, go to a committee. All they have to do is win at one instance, whereas the reformers or the parents trying to reopen schools, they had to run the table and that's a much higher task. So to that point on, on teachers union actions being downstream from teacher opinion, do you see in the data any issues where there is a wedge there where unions are actually not acting in the interests of rank and file teachers? Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to the discipline issue and I'm sure there are others. Um, and, and so this is a really interesting area that I think we need more research on. Um, but I, I have no doubts that there are many issues where, and this is not just to pick on the teachers unions, because this is a bigger theme happening in American politics right now, given political polarization or partisan polarization. And that is that I'll give you three examples, three different interest groups, the teachers unions, um, the ACLU and the NRA. And if you go back 20 or 25 years ago, you're talking about in the NRA, an organization that, hey, we're evaluating candidates and making decisions purely based on voting records on guns. ACLU, free speech, don't care if it's right wing or left wing, just a free speech organization. And teachers unions, we're for bread and butter issues. But what we're seeing is that as the NRA gets absorbed into the sort of right wing uh, constellation or ecosystem in Washington and the unions in the ACLU you know, pad their bills with support from the left, they have to become orthodox on all issues. And so invariably, that's going to lead you to have a lot of members who are part of your coalition that signed up for the insurance protections or for the salary increase that aren't there for issues related to LGBTQ communities or there for issues related to foreign policy or whatever. Um, but that's who they're there with. Um, and so you do see that. Now, here's the interesting question, though. Prior to Janice, 
when you were a teacher working in a state that had mandatory agency fees, that is, if you didn't like what the union was doing, you still had to support them financially. Or if you left, you'd, you know, you could resign, but you'd still have to pay them 80% of dues. Um, it was probably easier for unions to get away with having that sort of slack or lack of responsiveness to a lot of their members. I'm expecting, though not certain, that as time goes on and the proposition changes, we'll either to see one of two things. We'll either have teachers who enter the profession are going to become more liberal because the, the unions are liberal and they're like, OK, that's the game in town. Or the unions are going to feel like we need to talk bread and butter issues. It's got to be pay and benefits and this common bargaining thing. I don't know how well that's going to hold up if you want solidarity. Yeah. So that, that's interesting because there's going to be when people are are uh, choosing not to pay the union, they also don't get to vote in union elections. So the people who stay, I could actually see it having uh, on that sort of a more polarizing effect because the people voting for leadership are the people who, who are opting to pay uh, in the first place. So, yeah, that'll be very interesting to watch for the next several years. Let me end with uh, some success stories. Where do you see in city, big cities or small cities across the country education reforms having a material positive effect on on learning? Well, I think that the two best examples of this um, would be uh, we had major success in Louisiana and uh, New Orleans post Katrina. Uh, so I really recommend everyone Terry Moe's book on that, The Politics of Institutional Reform, where he shows clear and convincing evidence that policymakers who were pretty boring and, you know, weren't exactly radical reformers after the storm and after the union there lost power. They really redid the entire system from a new and it's a choice based system there. Not per, not not perfect by any means, but a huge improvement over what was there. And independent economists like Doug Harris at Tulane have shown huge gains for kids in New Orleans. And I'd also point to D.C. You know, D. Michelle Ree left the scene, but her reforms lived on uh, in her predecessors. And I think D.C. is another place uh, where you've had some positive outcomes. Uh, too soon to speak on student achievement, but I, a shout out to Ron DeSantis's team and what he's doing in Florida, because um, DeSantis, of course, is getting a lot of attention on what he's doing on the DEI front and some culture war issues. But more than anything, the governor endorsed 30 school board candidates in the 2020 primary elections, which was a first. I mean, I don't think there's ever in the history, modern history, post-World War II history, an instance of a governor can, uh, going out uh, and barnstorming for conservative school board candidates. And 25 out of 30 of his candidates won. And the big number there is really not that number. It's that the teacher union endorsed candidates in Florida, which had been winning about seven out of 10 races prior to DeSantis's endorsements. When DeSantis went up against one of the union back candidates, the unions only won 25 percent of the time. So I hold that up as an example. We'll see what these you know reform minded school boards do. I'm not vouching that that they're setting the world on fire yet, but. It does suggest that a lot of this is just informational and that for a long time, voters and parents have gone into the voting booth and not really known a lot about the candidates because these are nonpartisan low turnout elections. So simply having a bully pulpit and a reform minded governor get out in front of it and say, hey, these here's my 10 point education agenda. By the way, one of DeSantis's points, people miss this all the time, is raising teacher pay. They think it's all woke DES. No, I mean, he's reading the tea leaves. He knows teacher pay is down. But he puts out his agenda. He says, this is what I'm for. If you're for it, I'll consider endorsing you. And his candidates rolled. So I think other governors across the country and other education reformers should try and find some uh, policy entrepreneurs who could be leaders here and give voters some signals about which candidates are for what. And that could go a long way to counterbalancing the teacher union power because that's not going away anytime soon. 
Professor Michael T. Hartney. His new book is How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions, and American Education. Thanks so much for talking, Michael. Thanks. Great to be here.